Let me first give you some names so you know who I'm talking about. The gentleman who's going to be preaching this morning is the pastor of Cornerstone Bible Church. I almost said fellowship, but I went church, okay? Because we have Riverside Christian Fellowship, so I always get those two mixed up. Cornerstone Bible Church, Edwin Gonzalez. Edwin is the pastor of that church. He has been the pastor of three families that are now at Palm Vista, uh, the Behars, the Joiners, and the Krasinskis. Um, and I'll talk about that more in just a moment. But with him this morning is his beautiful wife, Maria Luisa, his daughter, Laura, right? His other daughter, Sarah, and his son, Miguel. And then they have three friends who I forgot your names, but I know they were part of the church. You're now in Canada, I understand. And you're back down here for Expo Elite. Great. Washington State. Close enough. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, they have to uh, leave right at the end of the service because they are doing a, a presentation at Expo Elite. So thank you for coming. That I'm aware of, is there anyone else here that would be here because of your fame, Edwin? <laughs> you have any groupies here? Is there really? Oh, great. Well, welcome to them. I see, yeah, Carmen's with them. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Edwin. Uh, he grew up in the Dominican Republic. Um, he then, that I'm aware of, came to be part of Cornerstone 19 years ago. And then for the last 10 years, Edwin has been a pastor there. And for the last two years now, the senior pastor there. Year and a half? Okay. Uh, I first met Edwin really through uh, my contact. I think it was first with the Joiners, if I'm not mistaken, and then with the Behars and then the Krasinskis because these three families came to us from Cornerstone. Now, you have to understand something. When a pastor loses a family to another church, typically that pastor doesn't talk to the pastor of the other church. <laughs> he may talk to God about him. Get him, Lord! But rarely does he talk to the other pastor. Not only did Edwin talk to me, he sought me out. He, um, he counseled me. His, his only concern was for the glory of God and the care for these families. Folks, that's solid gold for which we need to thank God right now and just give God thanks, yes, right now. Heaven is rejoicing, and Edwin, may you know that God is very pleased with you, my friend, and uh, much eternal reward there. Well, it happened with the Joiners, and it happened again with the Behars, in case I was mistaken, like, maybe this is a fluke, you know, this can't be twice, and then it happened again with the Krasinskis, and the Krasinskis will tell you, Denise is a single mom, I mean, Edwin in the church has been like her family, uh, she was very hesitant to make the move, but because of geography, and we've lost a few folks up north because of geography, but Edwin was just clear, you need to be cared for. That's your church. I'm, I'm crying as I'm telling you this, but that's your church. And so James and Tyler are here. So my friend, um, this, is, this is your family. You have home field advantage. We honor and respect you as a church. We can't wait to hear what God is going to speak to us through you in this wonderful text in John 5. So church, can we welcome Edwin Gonzalez? Thank you so much, brother. This is your place. 
I am very humbled by, by your reception. I'm very, very much intimidated by the fact that you do love the Lord. You express that in your worship. And when there is a good worship time, I always have the fear of not spoiling it with the ministry of the Word. I would like to uh, bring you greetings uh, from our church, Cornerstone. I also want to express the, the joy of the intersection we have because of these three families that Pastor Pino mentioned. Uh, our common faith in a sovereign Lord, our common desire for His glory and for His honor. I am grateful to you, to your pastors, for having lent Pastor uh, Pino to us a couple of months ago. I really enjoyed his ministry with us, and I enjoyed spending some time of fellowship also. And uh, I want to thank you, brother, for having gone to our church, for having ministered to us. It was good to our souls, and I could even take advantage of your experience in church planting by sending you that common friend, Ross Robinson. So I'm already taking advantage of that friendship. Thank you, brethren. And uh, before we give ourselves to the ministry of the word, I would like to ask you once again to join me in prayer. Let us pray. Our Father, you are glorious and gracious, and in the worship time, we were reminded of the fact that we celebrate when we come into your presence. We celebrate your grace. We celebrate the access we have into your throne of grace and mercy through Christ. And it was very manifest, the joy of your people as we did that. Will you not send us again your Holy Spirit as we gather around your word? The Spirit that inspired John to write the gospel. The Spirit that preserved the scriptures that we may have our copies today. And the Spirit that illumines our minds when we approach your word. Oh, may he be with us. And may the ministry of the word be of profit to us. And especially, Father, I pray in the light of Jesus' promise about the coming of the Spirit, that he would come to glorify Christ. Oh, Father, may Christ be exalted in the ministry of your word this morning. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Our text for this morning was assigned to me uh, some, some months ago. I, I was impressed that you know what warrior we're going to be on May 17th. I have no clue what I'll say next week. And we're starting First Timothy in the morning in our church. And uh, our passage, which is rather lengthy, 29 verses of John 5, deals with the person of Christ, as is very obvious in the Gospel of John. And I entitled this sermon, Blessed Savior to Sinners, that is the Lord Jesus, but an inconvenience to the religious. Why that? Because in this passage we will face or we will be in front of the reality that many times is true to us that we can be standing before the same scene but observe completely different things. Husbands, you know exactly what I'm talking about when you hear that dreaded question. Do you notice? anything different from your wives. 
And if you point to the hair, it was the shoes. If you point to the furniture, it was something related to her suit. We never make it. Well, here we have a case in which John presents the Lord Jesus. And even though there is a very obvious scene, many people missed it. What was it? Let us turn together and consider who is this blessed Savior of sinners, but this inconvenience to the religious as we read together John chapter 5, verses 1 through 29. Pastor Al, I have to be done at 1130. Is that correct? You have as much time as you want. Thank you so much. <laughs> John 5, 1 through 29. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I read from the New American Standard. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Skip to verse 5 with me. And a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. When Jesus saw him, saw, saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no man, no, no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Therefore the Jews were saying to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Take up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your pallet and walk? But he who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse may befall you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, and in the following section, he precedes three transcendental statements about himself with the Jewish formula, Amen, Amen, truly, truly, translated in my version. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son cannot do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, that you may marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. And shall come forth those who did the good to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. Amen. The rich theological content of this portion of the scriptures can barely be handled in one sermon. It demands many sermons. However, if we remember, and I'm saying remember because I'm sure, and I say I'm sure based on what I heard of your pastor in our congregation, who is a man who opens the passages and opens the scriptures with clarity and with instruction and in its context, and he's not a just Bible talker, but an expositor, based on that, I feel comfortable saying that if we remember the context and the purpose with which John wrote, then it's going to be easier at least to distill the main focus and the meaning of the passage. Why did John write this gospel? He wrote a treatise, or a treatise, to explain and to expound that Jesus was the Christ, the Logos, the Son of God, and he chose a device to do this. What did he choose? Signs. Seven signs in the Gospel of John that he records and arranges in a certain way to prove this Jesus of Nazareth is God incarnate, Messiah, the Logos. This is the third sign. Why did he do that? He says it in his book, in chapter 20, verse 31. These things have been written. I'm not concerned, John says, with the many things that Jesus did that cannot even be recorded in all the books on the earth. They couldn't fill the earth. Of course, it's a, it's a hyperbole. It's a, it's a literary exaggeration. But I'm not concerned about those. The ones that I wrote, they have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. If we keep that in mind, then it's easy to sort of ascertain at least a distillation of all of the theology behind this lengthy but rich passage in John. He wants us to see the signs, conclude that Jesus is God, believe in Him, and have eternal life. And John deliberately like if he were a cameraman, zooms in all of his scenes in Jesus. He is like the person who goes to the Miami arena to watch a basketball game, but he doesn't know too much about basketball. And he just follows the ball. If you want to have fun, if you have played basketball or want to learn, follow the players moving in defense. Or follow the offensive rotating. The same happens in a baseball game. Just don't follow the pitcher throwing. Watch the catcher moving all the things. Well, John doesn't do that. John says, I want you guys just to look at the ball. And I want you to look at Jesus. And he focuses on the Lord. 
Therefore, when we look at the signs, let us not get lost and caught up in the details, but grab the distillation of, I want you to see Him as God, as the Logos, as Messiah, and believe in His name and have eternal life. To the Jews, the Logos, the very Word of God. In the beginning, God said, God spoke, and the world came into existence. That's Jesus. For Him and by Him and through Him, all things were made. Jews, I want you to see that. To the Greeks. And they had their, their Platonic ideas on the back. All the Logos, that, that immovable reality that gives reason to our existence. Oh, no, no. That Logos, that is Jesus. Plato, try to ascertain about Him philosophically. I'm telling you who He is. He is a person. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Messiah, greater than all of the symbols of Judaism. Greater than the temple. Greater than the Sabbath. Greater than all of the feasts put together. The great I Am. The judge of all the earth. That's John's mind. And then in this third sign of the seven he has brought, Pastor Pino talked to you about the water turned into wine and the healing of the royal officer. What do we find in that reading? Well, I have five points. And hopefully they are at least easy to remember. And the five points are just questions or statements. The occasion, when. The location, where. The action, what happened. The reaction, what caused. Or what occurred after this action. And then finally, the lesson. Why? If you remember that, what, where, when, why, probably you'll get the point that John is trying to make in this text. What is the occasion? Verse 1 tells us that Jesus went to Jerusalem to one of their feasts. We're not told what feasts. We just are told that Jesus, probably during his Galilean ministry, he spent two years near his hometown, living in Capernaum, close to where he was from, Nazareth, and in that northern region, he would have to come down whenever there was a Jewish fe feast, because as a law-abiding citizen, as a law-keeping Jew, he would come down to Jerusalem and worship. Well, during one of those feasts, he came down to Jerusalem. And then John tells us what happened, where, or, or in, what, what, in what location. There in Jerusalem, there is a sheep gate at the eastern side of the city, and in that place, there's a pool called Bethesda filled with all kinds of needy people. Interesting that for many years, Christians just took it by faith, as we must take what we read in our Bibles by faith. But in the last century, around the 50s, it was discovered that indeed there was a pool that had five porticos, and that was the pool that John makes reference to. And even though when he wrote, Jerusalem had already been destroyed, John is still saying, you can find the ruins of that place. And there's that, at the eastern side, the place called Bethesda. It, had, it was fed by underneath springs. And uh, apparently, these springs squirted occasionally. When that happened, then the water got disturbed. And it was rich in minerals. Some people report about having a reddish color. 
So imagine the scenery, water that gets moved because underneath springs are feeding it. It turns reddish because of the minerals. And immediately people are saying, oh, that's an angel that comes from behind and stores it. And it gives it miraculous powers. I would imagine that there were people with some kind of skin diseases that would go down there and would get healed. Their skin diseases would be made better. John is not saying that this was true. John is reporting what was happening at the time. And it's important to make that notation. Now, what is interesting about this place is that it was a very disgusting sight. You would walk into, imagine you're walking into the Marlin Stadium, into the pro player, through any of those five porticos, and there is a roofed area, and then you walk into the pool. But as you're walking, you, are, you encounter all kinds of crippled, maimed people, paralytic, sick people, skin diseases. I don't know if lepers would be there, because they were considered unclean. They were out of the camp. But you would find this horrendous side of homeless, maimed, paralytic, stinky people trying to get healed in this pool. It makes me think about the condescension of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I, I have problems with one eye and problems with one ear. My kids know that. When they talk to me, they say, Dad, what, what's a good ear? And I turn the good ear. They, they need to make sure that I hear. But, but I smell a lot. When you smell a lot, you become like a yaki person. Everything's like, what, what's the smell? And, and people get... Whenever I am disturbed by bad by a bad stench, I think on my Savior. He came down to live in an area that when it was hot, it was hot. And there was not body deodorant. And he subjected himself to those things. And I just imagine the Lord Jesus walking into this stinking place that was not even nice to go to. But off he went and walked. And what was the action? Well, he healed a paralytic, a hopeless, disillusioned man who had waited 38 years. This is a pretty young church, by what I can tell. A lot of young people. 38 years could be triple the age of some or double the age of some. It's a long time. If you go back, most years, you go back 38 years, you were a child or a teenager or you were not even born. And this paralytic is there 38 years waiting for someone to help him. He didn't have anyone to carry him down. He didn't have a friend. He didn't have relatives. Nothing. And he saw people up and down, coming down the pool to try to get healed. When Whenever the springs squirted water, he would go and people would jump into it to get healed. He couldn't. And Jesus focuses on him. Perhaps the worst of all, perhaps the most hopeless of all, and tells him, do you want to get healed? Can you picture that? I, I tell my, our people in Cornerstone, I, I grew up watching cartoons. That makes me very imaginative reading my Bible. Picture the scene. And Jesus looked at this guy and says, you want to get healed? <laughs> Sir, it's 38 years here. Nobody helps me. And he says, 
pick up your pallet and walk. And all of a sudden, these limbs that are probably skinny gain muscle, gain fatness, or grow. Just picture it. The guy stands up, takes off the pallet, and walks. And walks out of the place. Just imagine like, wow. Wow. Now, 38 years, everybody knew him. 38 years. By the way, it reminds me. And the passage is not talking about that. I don't want to impose that in the text. But it reminds me of total depravity and unmerited grace. Undeserved grace. Jesus picked the worst. I have some bad news to tell you guys. We're a handful here, right? A lot of people in their boats having fun, running around. I saw bikers on the road here. Wow, what a blast. My son said, oh, what a blast. Yep. Oh, we're better because we're in church. No, no, we're worse. We are the worst. Grace meets the worst. Ephesians 4 says that Christ descended to the very bottom to rescue trophies of His grace. And that passage is a picture of that. We find His sovereign grace meeting this man not because he deserved it. Oh, well, he was ready. He prepared himself. He was a seeker. We need to be seeker sensitive. The only seeker in the Bible is God. No one seeks after God. We don't need to worry about the seekers. God seeks them. Let God do His job. We just are faithful proclaiming His word. Now, Christ in His sovereign grace meets him and raises him. And the healing had nothing to do with a man's faith. He did not even know who he was talking to. Well, sir, he doesn't say, Oh, Jesus, you're the guy who heals. He says, Nobody's helping me. So what kind of question is that? Get up. Take up your pallet and walk. Healing had nothing to do with his faith. It had all to do with the power of the Logos. What John is trying to instill in his readers. And it had all to do with the mercy of the healer. But then we find the reaction. Jesus' action provoked a reaction in the Pharisees. It exposed their religious hypocrisy. And it started with the Sabbath. This guy walks out with his palate. The ultra-known, infamous paralytic of 38 years. Stinking paralytic. Everybody saw him. Everybody knew about him. And he's walking. What did the Pharisees see? It is not permissible to carry your pallet on the Sabbath. What? We laugh, but I bet you we would have done the same. In fact, to my shame, I have to say, I've done it. Wally remembers when 10, 12 years ago, there was a man visiting our church with his little one. And the little one was disturbing. And we were so worried about the service not being disrupted that we offended him never to return. 
we were more concerned with the order in the service than with a sinner listening to God's word. So I know what it is to be a Pharisee. Nobody has to tell me. I have been one for many years, to my shame. The Mishnah had this law. You cannot do any work, therefore don't carry your pallet. Excuse me, if you are a paralytic, what in the world are you going to carry? Well, just if you happen to be healed, don't break the Sabbath. That's hypocrisy. They were concerned with the regulations. The Torah, the law, was about mercy. Oh, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. If you see your mule, your neighbor's mule on the ditch, help him out. If you can do mercy to anyone, go do it. God was concerned with mercy. The religious hypocrite was concerned with duties. And that's the case even today. That man-made religion is concerned more with duties than with mercy. But Jesus said, I want mercy and not a sacrifice. Do you want to know what God wants of us? Of you, Palm Vista, of us at Cornerstone, of you individually, of me individually. He said it. He has shown you, O oh man, what He requires of you. To do justice and to do mercy and to walk humbly before your God. That's Micah 6, 8. And Jesus exposed that religious hypocrisy that places zeal in the wrong object. It is the Sabbath. You cannot walk. Well, what is the lesson? What does John want us to see from that strange passage? At least four things, four statements, three of which Jesus preceded with a Jewish formula to affirm what I am saying, I am saying under oath before the God who sees all things. Truly, truly. Amen, amen. And if you have your Spanish Bible, desierto, desierto. He's swearing. What I'm going to say, it is the absolute truth. And he starts saying, I'm God. I can do it. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 17, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Here's John in Ephesus, around the year 90 A.D. And he's sitting in Ephesus, and he knows the Gnostics are coming we're starting to come and infiltrate the churches saying, you know what, Jesus of Nazareth, yes, he had the Christ. He had the Logos. At baptism, the Logos came upon this advanced, illumined man, but at the cross, it left him. And John has those in mind. And then there were also those who were the, the Neoplatonists. They said, well, matter is, is, is marred, is bad. Anything that is made of flesh is sinful. Only the spirit is pure. Therefore, God could not take upon himself flesh. God could not be a man because a man is evil because of his body. And here's John saying, nope. God took upon himself flesh. 
and lived sinlessly in that flesh, He became like one of us. Here's this occasion in which He even had to tell the Jews, My Father is working until now, and so I work, and the Jews caught it on. They took stones to stone Him, rocks to stone Him. Why do you stone Him? Why do you want to stone me? Because you're blaspheming. By calling God your Father, you're making yourself equal to God. And here is John, here's John, blasting that wrong theory that God could not be incarnate. But he moves on and says, He's not only God on earth, Jesus is the, both the judge and the giver of life. Verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son cannot, cannot do anything for Himself. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to those who He wishes. Verse 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, in order that they may all honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. I don't want to complicate your lives, but I need to make this brief theological note. So you see, the Father had to give him those things. He was there, the Father had to make him judge. The Father had to make him a life giver. The Father, in the economy of redemption, did it. Yes. Because the Son chose to submit himself to his Father and become the Redeemer. But John already clarifies, in essence, they are the same. They are equal. The Son is God. Now, when He came to be the Redeemer and humbled Himself to become a man, then, yes, certain things He agreed that He would receive. Even the name that is above all names was given to Him by God as a result of His humiliation to become the Savior, the God-man, the one who dies on a cross. And it is in this context that John speaks. But it reminds us of what is the right believing in Jesus. There is a wrong believing in Jesus. Go out there and ask people, do you believe in God? Oh, yes. Do you believe in Jesus? Even if they are Muslims, they'll say yes. He was a great man. He was a prophet. He was a master. He was an advanced uh, teacher, an illumined man. That's the wrong way to believe in Jesus. In John 8, 24, Jesus said how you have to believe in him. Unless you believe that I am, and he stopped it there, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am the same one who told Moses in the wilderness, I am who I am. Unless you believe that I am the same Jehovah that Moses met, you will die. And the right believing in Jesus is not faith in the historical Jesus. It's not faith in the iconic religious figure of Jesus is not faith in what a friend I have in Jesus as beautiful as the hymn goes. It is faith in embracing Him as God, as Savior, as life giver, even as judge. And then there is a great affirmation or the third great affirmation that comes after the reaction from the Pharisees and it is that Jesus is the author of salvation. The well-known verse 24. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but has already passed out of death into life. And I love the way my fundamental Baptist brethren taught me that verse. Do you want to know if assurance is real? There you have it in all the tenses there. If you believe and embrace Jesus as God and Savior and life giver, now you have eternal life. I always tell my children about my death. They tease me with all kinds of things and I say, when I die, you'll remember me for those things. Well, yes, my body and my soul will split, but I will not die. And if you are embracing Christ as Savior God and life giver, right now you already have in the present eternal life. And you do not come into judgment. When that judgment of the great day comes in which men naked will appear before God, rich and poor, and all their deeds will be exposed, and those who are not found in the book of life will be cast away from God, that will not happen to you. Because you already in the past have passed out of death, spiritual death, into life. Now the passage ends with a frightening and encouraging note at the same time. Remember what I told you at the beginning. We are at the same scene, but not everybody, not everybody sees the same things in this text. And what is that fourth statement the Lord Jesus makes as to the whys of the text? That He is the resurrection and the final judge. Verse 25. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. Remember at the end of Revelation that it speaks about two resurrections, and blessed is the one who takes part. Jesus here says, there's an hour in which the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it shall live. Hmm, what dead? Let's keep reading. Just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs, hmm, something different, shall hear His voice and shall come forth those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil, a resurrection of judgment. So, in the first part, whomever hears it shall live. In the second part, those who are in the tomb will either go to a resurrection of life or one of judgment. What is Jesus saying? Well, that in this life you have a chance to have a resurrection, the first resurrection. When dead in sins and transgressions, to use the expression of Paul in Ephesians 2, God quickens our eyes and opens our understanding and removes the scales from our eyes and we see Christ and we run to Him and we believe because the Spirit gives us life while we were dead. And then on that day, even if our bodies are in the tomb, we will hear the voice of Christ again to unite both body and soul and live forever with Him. But others who did not partake of this resurrection down here, will only hear that voice to go to a resurrection of condemnation and judgment.
And here comes the good news for the sinner. I am. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate to the sheep. I am the truth and the way and, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. I am the true vine. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. But then there's the bad news. The bad news for those who do not hear that voice. But even with a man who received the miracle, remain blind to God. Isn't it sad that when Jesus encounters this man again, it doesn't seem that he reacted or he reacted to the grace of God. Jesus meets him, and what does he say to him? Beware you don't do something worse or you don't sin, lest something worse happens to you. And Jesus is basically saying, listen, whatever problems you have, yes, it is a result of sin. It's either the result of your sin, or my sin, or Adam's sin, or the sin in the world. You have an accident? Why do we have an accident? Somebody made a dumb thing in the palmetto. Yes, that's a result of sin. If we were perfect, if Adam would have not sinned, we would not have accidents. Anything we have, it's sooner or later, more directly or more indirectly, the result of sin. That's what Jesus is saying. Beware. Don't mess up with sin or something worse can happen to you. What does the man do? Does he do that like the blind man that you will study later on, God willing, in John 9, and falls on his feet and worships? No, he goes and tattletale. Ah, he's the guy. Go get him. That's what he does. It doesn't appear that he had a gracious encounter with Christ. That's, of course, my own interpretation, and I've read it from others. You don't have to be dogmatic about it, but that's what it appears on the passage. We don't see the worshiping attitude of this man. What we see is Jesus having to warn him, and then he goes running to tattletale on him. He has a lesson for us. Temporal mercies are not the same as eternal mercies. You can be the recipient of God's grace. Even listening to good sermons, even listening to a good word, even being embraced by God's people, being welcomed by them, raising in a, being, uh, being raised in a Christian family, and not necessarily be the recipient of eternal blessings. Look for the eternal blessings. I'm not saying you can lose salvation. You cannot lose what is not yours. You cannot lose what God gives it to you by grace, sovereignly, before the foundation of the world. What I'm saying is don't take temporal mercies as a sign of anything. Many times, beloved, the righteous, the ones who fear God, are the ones who suffer affliction, persecution, and trials because God wants to form Christ in them. And the ones who do not fear God are the ones who get the promotions and the good things and the goodies and the fun of this life. You know why? Because God calls them illegitimate children. I have nothing to do with them. Do you bother when your neighbor's son or daughter throws a tantrum? You don't. Woe is your child if he doesn't. Because you love him. And you discipline him. God does the same. Now, the beauty of the text is this. The encouraging word of the text is exactly how it ends. The day will come 
in which those who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who did the good. Now, what is the good? Good works? No. The text says, what is the good? Embrace Jesus as God, as Savior, and as life giver. Embrace Him as the one sent by the Father. Believe in Him to have eternal life. Don't be like the Pharisee concerned about his laws and his little creeds and his little standards. Embrace Jesus. If you do the good, then you'll come up to a resurrection of life. You know what that means? That you, at the end, will walk into the presence of God. And you will meet the smiling face of Jesus. And He will say to you, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done, good mother. Well done, good wife. Well done, good husband. Well done, good worker. Good pastor, good deacon. Good mechanic, good manager. Whatever you are, well done. You always sought my glory and my honor. You didn't have too much, but you were faithful giving because you loved my kingdom and my church. You didn't have too many gifts, but you took your best shot for me. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come into the joy of your Lord. Christina knows this. This month or next month, Komatsu gives bonuses. And people are eager, waiting for the bonus. Oh, the bonus. And it comes and two weeks later, it's gone. Paid credit cards or paid whatever or gone. Then you have to wait 12 more months for the next bonus. These words of Jesus will be resounding Eternally, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. You know what is heaven? What you did this morning in worship, multiplied and powered to the gazillion nth power. It's joy and celebration without sin. Young people, it is true pleasure. There are pleasures at your right hand forevermore. Satan says, if you, if you commit fornication now, that's good. If you smoke some weed, you're going to feel good. You're going to get that thing. There are pleasures, eternal pleasures in a perfect, undecaying body forevermore, contemplating not by faith anymore, but by sight, the face of your lover, of your Savior, of your life giver. John wants us to remember that. And to God be the glory. And to Christ be all the honor. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Father, take your word. And apply it to the hearts of your people. Please blow upon all the chaff. Those things that I say that I shouldn't have said, and you know what they are, just blow upon them. Mess up the recording. But what was true, 
seal it to the hearts of your people and encourage them and prod them to good works and prod them to embrace Christ and love Him more. And if there's one here who does not know Him, oh God, have mercy. May they embrace Jesus as the life giver. Let me just say this morning that we have heard the gospel unvarnished. We've heard the gospel without anything that would distract from it. And let me just remind you of the scripture that Edwin so wonderfully taught us this morning. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. I just feel this from the Lord. Some of you need to hear that voice for the first time. Oh, if you hear it, respond. It will not disappoint you. Amen. If you are a guest, would you join me right through these doors? I'd like to say a quick hi. Edwin, if you'll come with me, the rest of you are dismissed. Thank you for coming this morning.